Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Books Network, uh, New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. My name is Banaf Shemadani Najad. Today we have the great pleasure of talking to Maryam Al-Attar. Uh, Maryam holds a PhD in Islamic Ethics from the University of Leeds in the UK. Um, she has taught ethics, Greek philosophy, Western modern philosophy at the University of Jordan. And she's also taught at King's Academy in Jordan, where she was teaching Islamic studies, ethics, and world religions. And now she is a visiting scholar at the American University of Sharjah, uh, where she teaches. Uh, she also, on top of all the other stuff that she's uh, taught, she's also teaching a course on Arabic heritage, um, which is offered by the Department of Arabic and Translation Studies. She is the author of the monograph Islamic Ethics, The Place of Divine Command Theory in Arabo-Islamic Thought, uh, which came back in paperback, uh, came out in paperback in 2012. And that's the book that we are going to ask her about today. All right, Maryam, how are you doing? It's so great to have you with us. I am fine. Thank you, Banapsha. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about yourself, like uh, where you were born, where you went to school, um, how you became in- interested. This is this is my favorite question: how you became interested in Islamic ethics, and whether or not you had a mentor. Well, I was born in Slovenia. I don't need to mention the date. I think I was born no, in Slovenia don't. to a Jordanian father, <laughs> to a Jordanian father and Slovenian mother where I lived like for eight years before moving to Jordan. I attended the school in Jordan and I did my uh, bachelor degree in physics. Then I worked in the field of medical physics for around 15 years. During that time, I was doing my master in philosophy, which was kind of a hobby for me. And after having two kids, after raising two kids, I decided to pursue my passion for philosophy and to go and to study PhD in Islamic ethics at Leeds with the, my supervisor. My mentor there was Professor Ian Netton. I also need to mention the other professor, my supervisor of master's degree in Jordan, the late Dr. Sahban Khlifa, who who, encouraged, who always encouraged me to, to finish and to, to go on to study the PhD. He always encouraged me, regardless of having the kids, being busy with different things, he said that you have to go on to finish your studies. So he was my first mentor. My other mentor was Professor Ian Netter, who also was a great support for, for me during the work on my PhD. Yes. Yeah, awesome. Um, did you have any female mentors, women mentors? Unfortunately, I didn't have any female mentors. 
But I had a wonderful friend and who was also my inter, uh, my examiner for PhD, Dr. Zahia Salhi, who is now in Manchester, teaching in Manchester. And uh, I work sometimes with her on uh, on other topics. We uh, She published a book in which I wrote a chapter, Dr. Zahia Salhi. Otherwise, no, I didn't have any mentors in the early stage of my studies, any female mentors. Yeah. Um... Okay. All right. So um, let me ask you, um, the title of your book is Islamic Ethics, the Place of Divine Command Theory in Arabo-Islamic Thought. Um, can you elaborate on that title? And um, can I ask you what you mean specifically by ethics and why you're calling it Arabo-Islamic? Um, uh, ethics in, uh, in this book is con- uh, I'm considering ethics the philosophical, the philosophical study of morality. And Islamic ethics indicates that, the title indicates that those who elaborated various views and theories on, of morality and who are studied in this book considered their work to be in agreement with the basic teachings of Islam, nothing else. And Arabic simply because... I'm focusing on work written in Arabic and Islamic because many of the scholars who worked on ethics were of non-Arab origin, were Muslims, but not uh, not Arabs. Mm-hmm. So what, like, can you give us some examples of the people that you work on in the book? And um, specifically, I think you concentrate on two or three people. Can you give us an example of who they are and what their background was? If we're talking about the Mu'tazila, uh, most of the Mu'tazilite scholars were actually from Persian origin. And mm. indeed, Qadi Abdul Jabbar, Al-Asad Abadi, uh, he is from Ray, which is nowadays somewhere near Tehran, right? Yeah, yeah, so yes. Indeed, yeah. But he wrote a voluminous work in Arabic called Al-Mughni Fi Abwaab Al-Tawheed Wal-Adl, which is the main reference for my for my book, which is the the, the main source of uh, for my for my research. Yeah. So let me ask you, Maryam, why ethics? Why why did you decide to write about ethics? What what um, what is relevant about ethics in Islamic studies today? Do you think? Um, indeed, when I decided to do my PhD, Benashe. One of the things that I considered writing about was philosophy of science, taking into consideration my background in physics. However, we had many discussions with my previous mon- mon- uh, previous mentor in the in the master of the masters, and uh, we were talking about the important issues that faced the Arab Islamic thought in, uh, in the modern in the modern era and I thought that ethical issues are maybe the most important things that uh, one has to deal with before any other uh, before any other issue ethics where I where I lived for example was seen as totally connected or related to religion many people would say that what is good is whatever God commands, and what is evil is whatever God prohibits. So haram, halal are two concepts or two terms that people widely use in our societies. So I'm afraid that 
somehow people stop thinking about those terms. They are not linking them to good and evil, what is morally good and evil, as if divine commands and prohibitions, uh, prohibitions have nothing to do with what is good for people and what is bad for people. So I thought, oh gosh, is it possible that in this very rich Arab-Islamic civilization, there are no thinkers or there, there have not been any great philosophers or thinkers who actually thought about ethics in a way that you wanted to be thought of, like a rational, moral inquiry, philosophical inquiry. Didn't they think about the meaning of what is good and what is bad, what is evil and what is, uh, what is, what is good? So that, uh, that took me to the field of ethics, actually. And that took me to the Mu'tazila. I looked into, into uh, the literature of those called philosophers like Harabi, Ibn Sina, Ibn Rushd, Kindi, but mainly what you find in their work is um, philosophy or ethics in the way that uh, has been done in Greek philosophy. So uh, there, uh, you can mainly find the virtue theories there. It has been brought to my attention that uh, uh, George Hurani and his book was very uh, one of the first books that I read related to Islamic ethics. George Hurani, who who wrote about Abdul Jabbar al Qadi, Abdul Jabbar al Mu'tazili, or the, the the chief the chief judge as uh, as he is known, and um, it grabbed my attention that oh gosh, he is indeed talking about very important issues. And George Hurani was the first, maybe, who uh, called the theory, uh, which uh, Al-Qadi Abdul-Jabbar opposes, he called that theory a subjective, uh, what is that? Not ethical voluntarism, not divine command mm. theory, but it can be given mm. another name, which is uh, subjective, uh, subjective ethics. So, subjective mm. ethics, indicating that... <laughs> It comes from uh, from 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 it is voluntaristic voluntaristic ethics or divine command theory. Yes. Awesome. So you uh, that was that was a de- definite answer to the question. And this now what you what your answer what you said as an answer made me think of another question. Um, so if I understand you correctly, you you saw a disconnect between what was um, the common good for the people um, or maslaha and what what the books considered uh, good and evil uh, without putting much thought into it and assuming, having assumed that this is what God considers good and this is what God considers bad. So you saw sort of a disconnect between the lives that the people were living and what was considered good and evil as dictated by God. Um, can you, can you, in, in, you know, considering how important this concept of maslaha has become in Islamic studies, could you sort of connect the two ideas, ethics and maslaha, and, um, tell us what you think about how they are, how they're related? Yeah, that takes us to a very important issue, Banafshe, indeed. I didn't, in my book, I didn't really talk much about maslaha, but it is kind of in the background of all the subjects because... Yes, it definitely is. Know, 
Yeah, yeah, there was there is a great uh, great PhD dissertation which was written somewhere in the fifties by Mustafa Zaid in Damascus, and he argued that there is no Muslim jurist, no faqih who didn't actually consider al-maslaha, which is human well-being, the ultimate purpose of any rule or law. So the ultimate purpose considered by any Muslim jurist, whether Maliki, Shafi'i, Hanbali, Hanafi, has been al-maslaha. And here we are talking about jurisprudence or al-fiqh, or usud al-fiqh, and you know that al-maslaha is generally considered that it was it is a concept or that it is indeed it was emphasized in the Maliki school of law. Now, somehow in the Arab Islamic tradition, we see kind of a separation between the usul al-fiqh and fiqh jurisprudence and the principles of jurisprudence and al-kalam or usul al-deen, which is the principles of belief, the principles of religion. Now, somebody early on, like somebody like Abdul Jabbar and the Mu'tazilite thinkers, the Mu'tazilite theologians, if you wish, they didn't do this separation. They didn't separate between usul al-fiqh and usul al-deen. Their books were simply called al-usul. So a book like al-mughni kinds of, kind of combines both principles of jurisprudence and ilm al-kalam or the principles of religion. Now, talking about maslaha and how that is linked to, the, to, to the ethics, indeed, Al-Qadi Abdul Jabbar, although he doesn't use the term maslaha, that developed later on because Al-Ghazali came almost 100 years after Al-Qadi Abdul Jabbar, he didn't use the term maslaha, but he did use the term al-nafa'a, al-manfa'a, al-qast, al-maqasid. He used those terms and he established that divine uh, commands and prohibitions, they are there in order to, to, for the sake of human beings, in order to to preserve their well-being in order to uh, that that they are they are moral commands that the morality comes first before the commands comes the morality and that is certainly goes together with the doctrine of maslaha now to what extent the Maliki school of law was influenced by the Mu'tazili theology I'm not 100% sure. It needs uh, it needs it needs it needs a very elaborate another study. dissertation. <laughs> yes, it needs another <laughs> dissertation for sure. But it is certainly certainly the Mu'tazilites are actually not only those who established Ilm al-Kalam. They were also very closely involved in establishing the principles of jurisprudence, usul al-fiqh. And maslaha, although they don't sometimes state it explicitly, but maslaha is indeed not only uh, one of the principles of jurisprudence or one of the sources of law in Islam, it is the ultimate source of law, which means that even God revealed the law, revealed the Quran in order to in order to safeguard maslaha, in order to safeguard humans' well-being, individual and, and communal well-being of, of, uh, of, of people. Okay. So 
I guess this was a great introduction to the topic in general. Um, let me let me just um, ask you what the main concern of your book, and I'll give the title one more time, Islamic Ethics, the Place of Divine Command Theory in, in Arabo-Islamic Thought is. So the main concern of your book. And the main concern of the book, my dear, is to investigate the source and the nature of moral values and moral judgments in Arabo-Islamic thought. Yet the ultimate goal is to provide some new insights into Islamic ethics and partially participate in the general revival in the study of ethics in Islamic philosophy. So some ethical theories that seem to hinder the socio-political developmental process should be challenged. And towards this goal, this book focuses on divine command theory, which restricts the utilization of reason in the realm of ethics and Islamic law. Okay, you use the word revival in the study of Islamic ethics. So you you think that there's a revival in the study of ethics and in the Muslim world right now? Yes, my dear, but remember this book was written in 2010 and as a soft copy in 2012. And indeed, the recent uh, what is recently happening in the Arab uh, in the Arab in the Arab land wasn't exact, expected at that time. I wonder whether I would be motivated to write a book like this nowadays. Uh, but Tell talking about the recent revival, you know, it's uh, maybe somebody like Fazl um, Rahman, like Khalid Abu Fadl. I have in my mind certain uh, progressive uh, Muslim thinkers who are trying to revisit some main doctrines, some main uh, principles of Islamic jurisprudence and theology, and to construct some ethical theories that are compatible with, with Islam and at the same time compatible with modernity and, uh, and critical philosophical thinking. Well, Mariam, I asked you this question specifically because I do believe strongly that there is a revival uh, in the study of ethics in the Muslim world. And um, I see it very clearly in Iran. <laughs> so I, I hope you don't... Uh, I don't. I, I hope you don't give up just because uh, politics is getting in the way. I would love to read some more of your books. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, all right. We talked about. <clears throat> excuse me. We talked about. Um, you, you just talked a little bit about divine command theory. Um, can you tell us specifically what divine command theory is and what you suggest? Um, the prevailing uh, theory that needs to replace that, uh, which you call divine purposes theory, is. Um, can you tell, and could you tell us what the, the difference between divine purposes theory, and I believe this is sort of the main push of your book, sort of to yes. describe what divine command theory is and um, yes. give sort of a background as to what the big thinkers uh, in medieval Islam thought, the, the, the ethicists in medieval Islam thought about that, and then propose yes. that, in fact, they were thinking about what they were suggesting was something very different from divine command theory. Um, and I will just give it over to you now. 
Okay, my dear. Indeed, when we are talking about divine command theory, uh, we shouldn't forget that it is not a theory that is mainly Islamic, or that it is the main theory, which, or that uh, it existed only in Islam. We need to know that. Gosh, divine command theory existed like much longer before Islam. It existed, at, as far as I know, in Judaism and in Christianity. It is the prevailing theory in Protestant ethics, from from Calvin and Martin Luther up to the, those who call themselves divine command theorists like Philip Quinn, who died recently in 2004, and, and others. So divine command theory is not uh, only Islamic. There, uh, there are divine command theorists in um, different religions in, this, in the world. However, when we are talking about the place of divine command theory in Islam, uh, we need to explain that uh, some writers have seen Islam as a very clear example of ethical voluntarism or divine command theory. But that's can you explain what that is, Mariam? Can you can you just give us a little um, background as to what, what that is? Divine exactly. command theory. Is. Okay, we can say that it is indeed it is a meta ethical theory. Uh, that interprets morality as obedience to commands. It is, uh, it is sometimes called theological voluntarism or divine subjectivism as called by uh, George Horani or simply divine command theory. A divine command theory states that moral values, good and evil, have no meaning apart from divine commands and prohibitions. And according to this theory, divine command constitutes the ontological basis of morality, which means no good or evil really exists apart from what was commanded and what was prohibited. Now, um, uh, indeed, indeed, that simply means that people who don't adhere to your religion if you are if you're a Muslim or a Christian or whatever, they simply have no access to moral knowledge. Because you can't even imagine if you are a divine command theorist, you cannot even imagine good or evil, right or wrong, apart from commands and prohibitions, which are of course specific to your religion. Qadi Abdul Jabbar, and that is his importance as Al Mu'tazilite thinker. As early as the beginning, as the beginning of the 11th century, he refuted this theory. And one of the main arguments he had against the theory is that uh, if this theory is right, if this theory is right, and if there is no good and evil apart from what is commanded or prohibited by God, then those people who are non-believers wouldn't know what is good and what is evil. However, he observed that even non-believers, they know good and evil, they know what is right and what is wrong. So, commands and prohibitions couldn't have possibly established morality. Yeah, and from here, there is, uh, the question was in uh, Islamic, uh, in the Ilm al-Kalam, or what is usually translated into Islamic theology, is whether, whether, whether revelation establishes or indicates morality. Al-Shara'i Muthabbit the answer of the Mu'tazila was that revelation simply indicates morality. It does not establish morality. That means that you can 
get to know what is right and what is wrong using your reason without revelation. That is possible. And that is how people from other religions and people who don't have a religion can have access to moral knowledge. So that is the importance of Abdul Jabbar. And by the way, this conversation and this argument is still valid today. Some people still argue for divine command theory and still people argue against divine command theory using the same argument that Abdul Jabbar has uh, used almost 1,000 years ago. Sorry, even actually, the question was actually, uh, so this is divine command theory. And uh, my argument in the book was mainly that it is not the theory that prevails in Arabo-Islamic thought. The theory that prevails in Arabo-Islamic thought, I think, is divine purposes theory, usually called in Arabic, Nazariyat Maqasid al-Shari'a. And, um, but we have a little problem here <laughs> because those people who started were actually and traditionally uh, the other school of of theology they were the Mu'tazila and then the Ash'ira established by Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari traditionally al-Ash'ira are known to be the people who actually uh, supported divine command theory al-Ash'ari clearly said that no and there is no good and evil apart from what is commanded or prohibited or the divine purposes theory was actually articulated by theologians who belong to the Ash'ari tradition. But what is the difference between what I would strictly call? What is the difference between what I would And here we have Islamic theory? studies in a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one side of your mouth says one thing, one side of the mouth says something else. Says another thing. No, I think I have to be clear on that point. I, ha- I have to be clear on that point, uh, Benafsha. Indeed, if the, I think the, the, uh, the next part of your question was, how come that you, I say that the prevailing theory was divine purposes theory, although the Ashaira actually were the people who defended divine command theory? Well, Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari and the early Ash'arite theologians, they clearly fully supported divine command theory. But such a theory which kind of implies that there is no reason, no purpose behind what is commanded and prohibited couldn't have provided the basis for practicing law in Islam because uh, fuqaha, those who work on fuqah, they always uh, worked uh, on the assumption that uh, every command, every prohibition, um, uh, something is prohibited or commanded for, uh, for a reason. There's a purpose behind what is commanded and what is prohibited. And that's why even the late Ash'arite, like Fakhreddin al-Razi, for example, or even somebody like Ibn Taymiyyah, who is Hanbali from another tradition, they say that indeed all of the fuqaha, all of the fuqaha were practically against divine command theory, that they were practically, they believed that there is objective standards for good and evil. But for some reason, even those late Ash'ari, Ash'ari like Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, they kept 
they are right doctrine, which is that al-shari' mufthabit wa laysa mubayyan. He adhered to this established al-shari' dogma, although on the other side, his um, his theory of maqasid al-shari'a completely, completely contradicts with divine command theory. Because at the moment that you say that divine command has a purpose, has a reason, that means you are not divine command theorist. Because if you are divine command theorist, there can't be a reason behind what is commanded and what is prohibited. Anything could be commanded and prohibited, and there is nothing that makes it good or evil but the command and the prohibition. Sorry, I have been talking too much, I no, think. No, this was fabulous. <laughs> it was exactly what I wanted um, you to um, tell us about. Okay, um, let me ask you, um, you, you, so you, you just talked about what the difference is between divine command theory as far as early, um, Ashara, the Asharites go. And, um, I, 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 I wanted you to tell us what divine, um, so, Specifically, can you tell me the difference, specific difference between divine purposes and divine command theories? Like, could you just um, tell us what it may be in a sentence or two exactly what the difference between those two are? Yes, indeed. I might say that divine purposes theory is a modified divine command theory, is a modified divine command theory, okay. because it takes into consideration that commands and prohibitions were issued for a reason. And this is a theory that can be applied in jurisprudence, can be applied when people derive laws in order to protect or safeguard their well-being. However, divine command theory, as articulated early by al-Ash'ari, it, it strictly says that there are no reasons behind what is commanded and prohibited. He even went to the extreme of saying that God prohibited indecency and uh, indecency, and if he did otherwise, then indecency would be good rather than evil. God prohibited um, stealing, but if he, actually, if he did otherwise, then stealing would have become obligatory. That is divine command theory. There is no reason at all behind what is commanded or prohibited. However, divine purposes theory, there are reasons behind what is commanded and prohibited. If there are reasons, then me and you and somebody who is a Christian and a Jew and a Buddhist can actually agree on those reasons because the reason is something that we all as human beings share. However, okay, commands so, and prohibitions is not. So what is exactly the difference between ethical objectivism and I should, you know, so what is the difference between ethical objectivism and this divine purposes theory? What is left uh, out of ethical, divine purposes? Ethical Sorry, objectivism can have, can, have, can have different meanings indeed. But when uh, we are talking about the Mu'tazilite uh, ethics, uh, even the early Mu'tazilite, they tried to establish theories of values to define good and evil, to define good and evil apart of religion, 
So they were looking whether good and evil are those actually uh, kind of entities that exist in objects. So they are objective, you know. Are they actually uh, something that uh, all the people can understand, can um, can feel, and can can know by with their reason? Moral intuition, That's, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. So if there is actually uh, if something that everybody can agree upon, we think that everybody can agree upon. It is objective. Like for example, if I tell you that this is uh, the color of this object is green, it is something that you and me can agree upon. But if I if uh, we're when we are talking about divine command theory, uh, they say it is subjective because it completely depends on the arbitrary will of the divine. It does not assume that God has purposes. It assumes that what establishes morality is the arbitrary will of God. You can't say so I, that God is good because that will take us to the question, what is good? Right. <clears throat> so I guess my question is, um, where, do, where, do, where does the divine purposes theory Stop short of joining the ethical objectivism. So, where what is the main difference between the modified um, divine command theory? What is it that it it leaves behind from objectivism? What does it not sort of entail, and why? What is the distance between them? What is that gap that can't be um, can, uh, you know traversed or connected or? I think, uh, Banafsh, that uh, there is no gap between divine command, between uh, divine purposes theory and ethical objectivism. We can still say that the divine purposes are uh, objective, that they are nothing else but the purposes of human beings, because divine purposes, al-maqasid al-sharia, as established by many Muslim uh, scholars, are to preserve life, to preserve intellect, to preserve your religion, to preserve your um, uh, your progeny, and to preserve your your um, your property. So those are actually also the purposes and the priorities of any human beings. We can say that the divine command, the divine purpose theory or maqasid the sharia is objective theory, can be objective theory. We can all agree on it. We can all agree on those purposes that are human purposes and divine purposes. What, but the gap is that there is something strange, which is that the, the meta-ethical theory behind divine purposes theory is lacking or is divine command theory because they still, when you ask them why what is good and what is evil, somebody like Abu Hamid al-Ghazali or al-Ashari would insist that good is what is commanded by God, evil is what is prohibited by God. So I think that maybe there should be a kind of a study, of a critical study of Ash'arite theology in order to put divine purposes theory, maqasid al-Sharia, in its right uh, ethical context or in um, to, 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 to give the proper meta-ethical theory that will uh, provide the basis of divine purposes theory and make it appeal more to the, um, to the, to the normal uh, 
uh, Muslim or sorry normal to the to the to, to, to different to different Muslims over uh, over the world or to let's say if we can say progressive Muslim thinkers. Yes, my dear, I think so. Okay. Um, wow. I I, I think uh, I think I know what your next book is going to be about. Or maybe your third book. We were talking a little bit about your next book. In fact, that's what I, I kind of want to talk to you about. Um, what is uh, the project that you're working on right now? Can I ask you? I am, I am working on a book also in Islamic ethics, but that will, that will deal with Islamic ethics from different uh, perspectives. So I will try to write a part on meta-ethical theories in Islam and a part on normative ethical theories in Islam. And the final part will be on applied ethics in Islam to see how uh, normative ethics can be applied to some applied ethical uh, issues, contemporary applied ethical issues. Which, which actually... <clears throat> brings us to, um, well, maybe one of uh, two or three wrap-up questions if we have time. But uh, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think um, uh, not only I, but perhaps the, the people who will be listening to this would like to know what sort of reverberations the use of um, divine purposes theory could have for um, fiqh, for kalam, for um, Islamic studies, or Muslims' lives on the ground in general. How do you see that sort of unfolding? I think that... That's a um, bunch of questions in one question, sorry. <laughs> I think the Nafshid of many, many scholars who worked on this Maqasid um, al-Sharia, um, recently many people worked on this. And um, there is a big difference between different individuals working on Maqasid. There are some people who are taking it more to the, more to the, let's say, kind of, they are focusing on the secular aspects of the theory, we can say. They are trying to, uh, to find other purposes other than those traditional purposes that has been that were stated by theologians 1000 years ago and there are also some more conservative uh, thinkers who are trying to focus uh, on the theory of maqasid as being a sharite theory which um, is a traditional theory, conservative theory, and that those maqasid are derived from the Qur'an and that they are literally derived from the Qur'an and we can't add to them, we can't interpret them in different ways because they emphasize that they are divine, that there is no human element in establishing nadariyat al-maqasid. I think that there is a lot of human element in establishing uh, even Muhammad al-Ghazali, although he didn't acknowledge that, must have observed the human condition when he established the five universal laws that are preserved by law, which is life, progeny, property, and so on. And I think that after 1,000 years, maybe people have to revisit that theory, maybe have to revisit the purposes of um, that need to be preserved by law, 
and maybe also that will include the purposes that we need to uh, to preserve by ethics because not every uh, issue that is moral or ethical you want to see it enforced by law of course so i'm not sure where was that where would that um, uh, study lead us but i hope that during the coming um, few years or maybe a few decades, there will be some scholars who would elaborate on Maqasid al-Shari'a theory and will add something that would be very convincing and useful for human beings. And I think that this theory is wonderful theory that will that would benefit even the non-Muslim who are interested in the field of ethics because it is kind of utilitarian theory in a way, but which sets the priorities and uh, the priorities, it's not pleasure, for example, it's not benefit, any benefit. It is the essential universal principles that are the priority for any human being that need to be preserved first. So I think that it might be very useful to work on this theory and try to uh, put it in the proper framework, in the proper meta-ethical framework, which is that it is a theory that is human for humans, for every human being, regardless of their religion. And at the end, isn't the Islamic religion meant to be universal and for every human being? And isn't religion actually meant to be, to meant to amend morality? Every great prophet or every great teacher first wanted to amend morality, wanted to reform society. So, if Muslim thinker can uh, thinkers can add something to this theory they would be able to participate in the debate of ethics on a universal level, rather than confine themselves in the circles of Muslim theologians and Muslim jurists. Mayam, you spent a very interesting uh, and uh, good, you know, I think a chapter or two, um, definitely chapter three, on pre-Mu'tazilite ethical doctrines. Could you could you tell us a little bit about that? Because we all think uh, it all started with the Mu'tazilites. Yeah, indeed. I thought that maybe not much has been written about the history of moral philosophy in Islam, apart, uh, apart from what is traditionally considered to be philosophy, that's written by Farabi, Ibn Sina, and other philosophers. So I was uh, studying, indeed, the doctrines and uh, the theories that were um, of the of the Khawarij, the Kharijites and the Murji'a, who were, of course, who came before the, uh, the Mu'tazila. And I shed some light on the Qadarites as well, Al-Qadariya, uh, and Ahl al-Hadith, uh, Eventually, um, that led me to talk about the Mu'tazila um, and uh, the similarities between between their moral views and the views of the Khawarij. And there are many similarities between the, some of the Kharijite sects and the Mu'tazila. Yeah, and uh, I guess that that chapter on um, the five principles of the Mu'tazila. Uh, 
the five principles the Mu'tazila interpreted uh, interpreted as moral philosophy is a chapter that I would really like to highlight. So I was talking about Usul al-Khamsa of the Mu'tazila uh, mm-hmm. as, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. as moral philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is there, now that we're sort of talking about your book, is there a favorite part that you have? Is there a section that sort of encapsulates um, the rest of the book for you? Well, part that well, you enjoyed I writing think, more than others? <laughs> yes, I think that the, the last two longest chapters uh, that are dedicated to the study of the Mu'tazilite ethical theory as culminated in the ethics of Abdul Jabbar uh, are my uh, favorite ones and, uh, f- uh, and also uh, the last chapter which speaks about the divine purposes theory and uh, is also one of my favorites. Indeed, because we are talking there about the meaning of moral judgments, what is the meaning of good, what is the meaning of evil, according to Abdul Jabbar and some other Mu'tazilite teachers. And we are, uh, there is an analysis of moral judgments of what is wajib, um, what is obligation, what is mahdur, uh, what is prohibited, what is mandub, uh, recommended, and so on. So, uh, chapter 5 and 6 are more philosophical than the previous ones. Chapters uh, from 1 to, to 4 mainly talk about history, about different concepts, explaining, highlighting different uh, theories and concepts. But I think that chapter 5 and 6 are mainly philosophical chapters where I am trying to reconstruct the moral philosophy of uh, Qadi Abu Jabbar al-Mu'tazili who died in 1025. And that are, those are the two chapters that I, uh, I think are important, more than anything else in the book. <laughs> Mariam, a lot of folks have written about uh, Qadi Abdul Jabbar, and I guess my question is, writing as, as an ethicist, um, how, how is your presentation of these ideas different? How are my presentation of these ideas different? Of the Montazalite, yeah. rationalism and... Um, yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, George Hurani was among the first to write about the ethics of Al-Qadi Abdul Jabbar. And he kind of interpreted the theory of Abdul Jabbar as being primarily and mainly deontological theory. I am interpreting the ethics of Al-Qadi Abdul Jabbar as being primary, primarily teleological theory. And that's what allows us to link it to the doctrine of Al-Maslaha and to the theory of divine purpose, to the, the theory of Qasid al-Shariha or divine purposes theory. I am interpreting Mu'tazilite ethics as teleological theory in ethics, which is different than what has been previously done by George Hurani, who was one of the first and the most important authors who wrote about Qadi Abdul Jabbar. And I so think can, that, can, uh, yeah. Can you tell us what teleological yes. ethical theory is? A teleological ethical theory is a theory where what is good and what is evil where what is good and what is evil are actually, or what is right and what is wrong, 
is uh, is related to the consequences of the action. Say consequentialism. So, okay. Mm-hmm. It's consequentialism. Yes. Cool. Where the ontological is simply uh, following rules, although those rules are of course um, beneficial to people, but the ontological, like uh, the ethics of Kant, uh, where where we are talking teleological theory, like the most prominent of all, uh, most famous theory in Western ethics would be utilitarianism, of course. So I'm interpreting Malthusite ethics as being primarily teleological, although it, of course, also it uh, it contains some deontological elements, which are very clear and obvious in his theory. Uh, Mariam, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? This has been so illuminating for me personally, um, and you've been so clear, and I've just learned so much. I was wondering if you have any closing thoughts, maybe something that has been left out that you want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> my dear, <laughs> it was a pleasure to talk to you. And indeed, yani, uh, some questions are really challenging since I haven't been, uh, I haven't read the book since two years. You uh, took me back to the book and you forced me to highlight some things that I think should, which I believe should have been highlighted. So thank you for allowing me. To next book, next questions. book, next I book. I enjoyed it, my dear. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much, Mariam. Hopefully yes. we will yes. connect soon and we'll be talking about your next book. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.